Welcome back, one and all, to the Unknown Friends Book Review Podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and today you have tuned into episode five of season two. Now, usually at this point, I would remind you to subscribe to and review the podcast, but really, if I could ask one favor of you, it wouldn't be that. What would mean more to me, and I think would be a better way of sharing the podcast, would be if you made it a point this week to tell one personal acquaintance about Unknown Friends. Anyone you think might be interested in a literary podcast like this, just shoot them a text um, or mention it next time you see them. If you enjoy it, then I bet you have a friend who might also enjoy a weekly book review podcast from a Christian writer. Because that's what I think, I hope, is unique about Unknown Friends. I want the podcast to be defined by the fact that I'm bringing a Christian perspective to each and every episode, to to each book I review. And then besides that, of course, I'm aware that as a writer myself, I approach literature from a slightly different angle than a lot of readers. I'm not necessarily a better angle, just a different one. And so I hope it can be helpful to hear the perspective of someone who, uh, I guess, experiences fiction from both sides, both as a creator and a consumer. Anyway, all that to say, I would just appreciate it uh, if you think the podcast is worth sharing, if you would tell one person about it this week to help us widen the circle of friends. All right, so today's review is of a work of Christian nonfiction by American author N.D. Wilson, titled Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. Now, it's been rare for me to review nonfiction on the podcast so far. Uh, in fact, the only precedent is episode six of season one, where I did a double review discussing A Praying Life by Paul Miller and Women of the Word by Jen Wilkin, two excellent books. Well, and I guess 84 Charing Cross Road was nonfiction as well. Well, today's nonfiction review is a little different in that the author, N.D. Wilson, is more well-known for his fiction. Uh, he is the author of quite a few children's-slash-young adult novels, uh, including a couple of fantasy trilogies, most notably the 100 Cupboards series. You might also have heard of his Ashtown Burials books, or the Outlaws of Time trilogy, or his standalone novels Lee Pike Ridge and Boys of Blur. Anyway, he's clearly written quite a bit, and on top of his fiction for kids and teens, he has also written two works of nonfiction, today's book and another titled Death by Living. Wilson is also a filmmaker now and uh, teaches part-time at New St. Andrews College. Now, a bit of backstory. Uh, Andy Wilson, or Nathan Wilson, but he publishes under Andy Wilson, was born and raised in Idaho and I believe lives there still with his wife and five children. He describes himself as the son of a couple of Jesus people hippies who gradually became Presbyterians. Uh, in fact, his father became a pastor and also started a little classical school, which is where Andy Wilson was educated. Uh, Wilson also describes C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and uh, Chesterton as some of the formative influences on his life and writing, which 
uh, if you read his books, is quite evident and really fun to, to trace as you read. Anyway, that is the very short version of his biography, um, but I have to say you really must go to his website, ndwilson.com, and read his bio there, uh, what he calls his unprofessional one. Well, you can read his professional one as well, but you have to read the unprofessional bio uh, that's in his own voice. You will laugh out loud and you will get a taste of his personality that I just can't explain. You you have to read his own words for yourself. So, ndwilson.com, you will enjoy reading his little biography there, I promise. Now, one last thing you should know about Wilson before I get to notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl itself. I don't know any details about this, and it frankly doesn't matter for for what I want to communicate here. Um, But what's important is that Wilson had a cancer diagnosis several years ago. I'm not sure exactly when. Um, And I believe his uh, brain tumor was successfully removed a couple years ago. Uh, I don't know what the situation is now whether there's the possibility of further issues down the road. Um, But what I do know and what I want to highlight is the fact that N.D. Wilson and his family have walked through a very dark valley and, if anything, are only stronger in their faith now because of it. Uh, I I have huge respect for the vitality and um, steadfastness of Wilson's faith, which is apparent in facts like these about his life, as well as in his writings. He has been tested in a way that not all of us are, and I think perhaps that lends some extra weight to his expression of his beliefs and his arguments in favor of Christianity. Now, that leads me pretty directly to today's book. Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl is rather difficult to categorize, but I've generally seen it labeled as a work of Christian apologetics. It is that, uh, and much more. Uh, Wilson says the book explores a way of seeing the world around us. Uh, And on that note, the book's subtitle is Wide-Eyed Wonder in God's Spoken World. Uh, And after reading the book, I can certainly say that wonder is one of the chief takeaways. Uh, Just awe at the world around us and the God who made it, um, and a a sense of seeing things with fresh eyes. Wilson has fascinating insight into realities about life that we don't typically pay attention to or understand, Uh, And he has an extraordinary way of communicating those realities he wants us to see. His writing is funny and visceral um, and often somewhat jarring, but, um, well, more on his style a little later. I think what he wants to do is wake us up, uh, and he, he knows how to accomplish that. So this book involves apologetics, but also communicates a surprising, fresh perspective on life. It incorporates uh, both theology and philosophy, as well as plenty of personal anecdotes and just description of the world around us in Wilson's poetical, even fantastical terms sometimes. Um, let me Let me try to find an entryway into the book's 
varied content by reading this little paragraph from Wilson's introduction, uh, in which he gives this brief initial explanation of how the book came to be. So he writes, Here's how it happened. Philosophers of various sizes and shapes and flavors and ages crowded into the saloon of my skull and began throwing elbows to make some space. Poets and preachers piled in with them. John Donne said some zippy things about Kant, and the ancients wouldn't stop snickering at the moderns. On top of that, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, that fabulously large Catholic writer, overheard someone making fun of Milton. It didn't matter that the insults were all true. Note the eruption. So, this book is a great example of a writer engaging in the great conversation. Wilson has all this background studying great writers and philosophers and theologians, and throughout Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, he is continually bringing up the ideas of all these different men and women from the past and present uh, and responding to their thoughts. And that enriches his book and strengthens it, I think, because he's including the ideas both of people he agrees with and probably even more so of people he disagrees with. Uh, he's not shying away from confronting philosophies that uh, oppose his. Uh, not at all. <laughs> he, he meets them head on and offers a Christian reply. A unique Christian reply, I might add. Uh, so let's get into the topics themselves that he's addressing. Uh, I'm going to try to sort of outline the issues he tackles, although this work is complex and varied enough that it's not entirely accurate to portray his approach as uh, strictly linear. Wilson says himself that his book does not go straight. Uh, it sort of spins like a tilt-a-whirl at a carnival or like the earth itself. But at any rate, here is my attempt to lay out in some kind of order the topics Wilson explores. So he begins, you could say, by asking and answering the question, what is the world made of? And he interacts here not only with modern explanations like evolution, but also ancient explanations. And his answer is a unique one that I think is really cool. And while it's sort of poetic, it is very grounded in what the Bible tells us. Wilson describes the universe as God's spoken world, and that's in the book's subtitle. Out of nothing, God spoke the earth into existence. And so when it comes down to it, Wilson's answer to the question, what is the world made of, is words. People are made of words, plants, animals, the sky and the sea, we are all syllables and paragraphs uttered by the voice of God. Uh, and I can't, I can't convey Wilson's whole explanation here, but I love what he does with this idea. Um, it inspires wonder. And I think it's one of the best things about the book as a whole. To try to give you a slightly better idea, let me just read a short passage from one of his opening chapters. He writes, I look around at the stuff of the world, and I ask myself what it is made of. Words. Magic words. Words spoken by the infinite. Words so potent, spoken by one so potent that they have weight and mass and flavor. They are real. 
They have taken on flesh and dwelt among us. They are us. In the Christian story, the material world came into existence at the point of speech, and that speech was ex nihilo, from nothing. God did not look around for some cosmic goo to sculpt, or another god to dice and recycle. He sang a song, composed a poem, began a novel so enormous that even the Russians are dwarfed by its heaped-up pages. You are spoken. I am spoken. We stand on a spoken stage. That's not much, but it gives you at least a glimpse into Wilson's uh, beautiful perspective. But he covers much more than this. He soon launches into a theodicy. Uh, Not the Odyssey by Homer, which is what it sounds like, but a theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. This is a term which means an explanation of God's goodness, uh, knowledge, and power in light of the existence of evil. How can a God who is all good, all knowing, and all powerful allow evil to exist in the world? Right? You've heard this question. Well, Wilson dives in and spends a good part of the book, actually, dealing with this, uh, dealing with the problem of evil and providing a defense of the Christian God. Now, his first response is simply to point out, quite logically, that to say evil exists at all is to acknowledge a transcendental moral standard, which points to the existence of the divine. Uh, We complain that God can't exist because there's evil in the world, but really, our very complaint demonstrates that God does exist. Anyway, but Wilson doesn't settle there. He is interested not just in proving the existence of the divine, but in defending him against charges of cruelty, uh, ignorance, or weakness. Now, I have to say, I don't think I've ever seen a Christian make a defense quite in the way that Wilson does. Of course, I can't distill his whole argument in a few sentences, but to grossly simplify his ideas, he ultimately wants to reframe how we view ourselves and God, in that he wants us to think of ourselves as characters in a story and God as our author. In uh, in art, in stories, if we were to take out the darkness, take out the conflict and suffering, we wouldn't have any story left. To take out all the shadows and all the tensions from a painting, you would eventually be left with a white blank canvas. Or if you took out the the bad guys and the struggle and suspense from a story, you wouldn't have a story at all in the end. Is an author evil because he allows his characters to suffer? No. Now, of course, the objection to that is, well, they're just characters. They're not real. They're insignificant. It doesn't really matter when fictional characters suffer. Well, Wilson then questions our estimation of our own significance. Why do we think we have more rights or more worth than characters in a story? our suffering really is much less significant than we imagine, especially when we view it in light of eternity. Even death is no true evil. It's a rebirth. And of course, this whole perspective is uh, made possible 
or maybe you would say it's redeemed, by the fact that God himself became as insignificant as we are, suffered all that we suffer and worse. And even if in the grand scheme of things, we should remember our own insignificance, the truth is God views us as significant, sort of like an author values and loves his characters. God values us enough to have become one of us and borne our sorrows and suffered the tragedy of death in order to rid death of tragedy forever. The incarnation alone, in many ways, is enough to answer the so-called problem of evil. Now, of course, I I can't do justice to Wilson's explanation. It's much more complex and well-developed than what I just tried to communicate. But maybe that gives you at least um, a glimpse of his argument. I will say I disagree with aspects of Wilson's theology. Um, I wouldn't say I necessarily disagree with where he lands, uh, and I think his unique theodicy is helpful and adds something of great value to the conversation. Um, That said, along the way, I think he dismisses too lightly uh, an additional answer to the problem of evil, that of human freedom, which could kind of combine with what he offers and I think strengthen his arguments. So I'm not sure whether I would be completely satisfied with his approach on its own, but I do think it contributes something um, very helpful to the conversation. Now, all that takes up several chapters of the book, like I said. Uh, In addition to that, he also addresses uh, kind of specifically the theory of evolution versus the worldview that sees the universe and each detail in it as art. Uh, and again, we're we're back to the perspective of wonder at the world around us and its creator. He addresses our notions of beauty uh, and even goodness, challenging us to look beyond what is cute and comfortable and see a bigger picture, see not only the earth, but also God and his holiness as stunning, uh, awe-inspiring, terrible in some ways, both exalted and lowly, but beautiful in a more concrete and unexpected way than, than we're used to imagining. Anyway, then Wilson kind of wraps up with a discussion of heaven and hell, which is heavily influenced by C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Uh, You'll remember our discussion of that work from the end of season one, episode 30. And finally, Wilson brings the book to a conclusion with um, a more thorough account of God's creation and incarnation than he's previously covered in the book. Um, Wilson calls the last chapter, The Story, capital T, capital S, And really, it is the ultimate answer to every question or objection that um, he or the philosophers of history have raised up to that point. Uh, It's a beautiful conclusion to the book. So that is my attempt to summarize this surprising and intricate book. You can probably tell I am recommending Notes from the Tilt the World, despite, like I said, the fact that I don't agree with certain parts of Wilson's theology. Overall, I really appreciate the freshness of his ideas and writing style. I didn't really address his style yet, did I? 
Um, he's certainly an amusing writer, but often with kind of a dark sense of humor. Um, you you see from what I've said that this work covers a lot of serious, pretty heavy content. I mean, the problem of evil is one of the central questions Wilson is tackling, uh, and he confronts it head on. Like I mentioned earlier, he himself has suffered. He has faced cancer and the possibility of death. And other anecdotes throughout the book demonstrate that he is not blind to the evil in the world. He is very well aware that people suffer horrible things, and yet he faces tragedy boldly. And so I I have huge respect for that. I will say his writing is bold to the point of being uh, kind of brash. Um, It would be offensive to some people. Um, he, he is very down to earth. He wants to deal in realities and not just sweeping realities like the existence of God, but also incredibly raw, uh, even crude realities sometimes. So I, I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, but his, his style is jarring sometimes. And that's clearly deliberate on his part, uh, but I feel it incumbent on me to warn you of it. And kind of along that line, the book is written for adults, so just bear that in mind. Unlike his fiction, it, it is not a kid's book. It's for adults and, and older teens. So the long and short of it is, I really appreciated the work as a whole. It awakens wonder and gratitude and humility, and I see a full-bodied faith behind it that inspires my faith to grow stronger and bolder as well. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unknown Friends. Looking ahead to next week, in episode six, I will be reviewing Flannery O'Connor's 1960 novel, The Violent Barrett Away. Now, I will be honest, Flannery O'Connor scares me a little. I read a few of her short stories in high school and college and always struggled to understand them or even enjoy them, really. And so, frankly, I had been avoiding her for a few years. But I really wanted to try reading her again, so I finally opened up one of her novels for the first time, The Violent Bared Away, and I think I might have partially understood what she was saying in this book. Partially. And even though I did not understand everything in The Violent Bared Away, it's certainly a story that makes you cock your head and squint and think very hard, which is usually a good thing. So I'm glad I read it, and I look forward to sharing the book with you all next week in episode six. Thanks again for listening, and remember, if I could ask one thing of you, I would love it if you would share this podcast with one personal friend this week. If you think it's worth listening to, others will too. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and if you'd like to learn more about me and my writing, just visit my website, kittywhamproductions.com, linked in the episode description. See you next week! See you next week!